Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Right now, it's, it's the 8th as I'm recording this, so we're finished with the first week of December, and it seems like an apt time to look back and reflect on my attempt at participating in Nonfiction November. Nonfiction November, as we were discussing at the time, was this effort pioneered by BookTube to just focus a little more on your nonfiction book collection, just for the course of a month. And I was pretty resolved to doing that, and for the first two weeks, I was very much on top of it. In the latter half of the month, my reading got consumed with thrillers. Again, I was preparing for my interview with Tess Gerritsen, and I've got something going on pertaining to Michael Connolly's Lincoln Lawyer series later this month, so I was diving deep into those. But in the course of my nonfiction reading, there were a couple of observations that seemed notable, and here's what they were. And this might go on long enough that it ends up taking up the whole retrospective. But point number one is my confronting, again, after reading a couple essays about him, that I will be fascinated for the rest of my life by an author whose work I don't particularly enjoy. His name is John Updike, and I have talked about him quite a few times in the past, almost always along the same lines. His books are kind of fading, even though he's only been dead for about 12 years. But throughout the second half of the 20th century, John Updike was one of the Mount Rushmore faces of the contemporary American novel. He was an adulterous, ponderous, sex-obsessed, chain-smoking Christian, one of the good ones, and he pretty much wrote a novel every 18 months for the duration, I guess the 40-year duration, of his career. And then he would release a eight or 900-page volume of collected essays every 10 years or so, plus he had a little books of poetry, books about golf. I think a lot of what makes me angry about John Updike is that he was brilliantly talented. He was fawned over by critics. He was rich as shit, which I kind of resent the impulse to even mention here. But he also seemed to not, just never really be trying. He lived a quiet life with zero adventure, except you could read about the one time that he was on vacation. I think he was in his 60s, and he and his wife got mugged at gunpoint. And even though John Updike read quite widely, and he was versed and conversant on many, many topics be because of that very promiscuous reading, something about his knowledge, as it was conveyed on the page, always struck me as being very superficial. He is insatiably curious. He's not at all daunted about tackling some very dense, abstruse, challenging subject. And that is one kind of intellectual, because it does take courage. Here's the thing about research. I might have made this point before, but it's kind of a bugaboo that I've picked up with respect to, like, political discourse. One of the common, like, rejoinders now, whenever you voice one of your political ideas to somebody of the opposing camp, is that the person of that opposing camp will say, do your research. Don't just take the words of all those pundits you're watching, those biased, TV-minded talking heads that you're watching on Instagram or wherever. Go online, find the literature, and do your own research. But there's a bit of a paradox in that statement, because the act of pursuing research on a topic is an inherently humble act. It is a humbling act. What you're doing basically when you go to research a topic is you're bending your knee at the altar of knowledge at a library or whatever, and you're confronting the limitations of your own knowledge. And you're opening a book which is full of text, and you are sitting there 
patiently, quietly, attentively, taking in someone else's perspective on the implicit basis that they know something that you don't know. But it often seems to be the case, this has been my experience, that whenever you're talking about politics with someone in your daily life, you put forth an idea and then they scoff and they say, do the research. Implicit in that statement is that they have done the research and they know that you have not. Implicit in their encouragement that you go and humble yourself is probably the most unhumble attitude that a person could possibly have, which is the attitude that they know everything about a particular topic and they don't themselves need to go and consult the documents. I think I am actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. The refrigerator is kicking on, sorry for the noise. But the reason that I say that like Updike's intellectual aura came across as superficial is because while he would set himself like sometimes the very formidable intellectual challenge of writing a novel set in 1600s Denmark or a novel about St. Augustine or a novel about 1930s Hollywood, he never seemed to be writing something in which he was challenging his own beliefs. I kind of think that that is, that is a key ingredient of artistic integrity because I never read an Updike book and got a sense that I was watching an artist trying to use their art as a means for legitimately grappling with like his soul. That sounds very flighty and romantic. What I mean basically is he never seemed to be challenging his own positions. John Updike's fiction, when you read it, it's kind of pinkies up. And then on the other end of the enter literary entertainment spectrum, you've got someone like Don Winslow. Probably my favorite episode of this podcast is when I interviewed him a couple years ago. But so Don Winslow is a crime novelist. He is, is his, his work is as thrillersome as thriller writing gets. But if you read like The Cartel, it's a 600 page thriller about the war on drugs you can feel, amid all of the gun battles and torture sessions and high-speed chases in that book, you can feel the heartbeat of an author who, in order to tell this story, has mired himself in researching a very difficult, painful topic. In the way that power dynamics are constantly changing in the course of that novel, you can feel the author is challenging his own presumptions and biases about who really was at fault for the cartel's atrocities. Also, plot twist, the answer is America. He sums it up nicely toward the, uh, it's either toward the end of that book, or maybe it's in the sequel, which is mostly about the opioid epidemic. But he says something like, you know, Mexico is one of the major drug producers of the world, but Americans, on the other hand, comprise 4% of the world's population, and yet they consume 80% of the world's narcotics. I'm going to say it again. Americans comprise 4% of the world's population, but they consume 80% of the world's narcotics. So if you got married to your significant other and you invited eight guests to your wedding so that there were only 10 people in the room, and let's say there was a five-tier wedding cake, you said your vows, you turned around, and it turns out two people had eaten the top four tiers of that cake. Two people ate 80% of your wedding cake. What would you do? You would tell those people, hey, you have a fucking problem and you need to look inside your soul. That reminds me of something. A while ago, I was on one of the most popular Reddit discussion threads that they've ever had. It's called, what's a secret that would destroy your life if it ever came out? The top comment was from someone who says that they've been running a bake shop, a general baking business, and what they focus on almost exclusively is wedding cakes. Four and five and $600 wedding cakes, people buy 
this woman's wedding cakes and they are very happy with the outcome, almost always. They get in touch with her afterward to say, hey, I'm on my honeymoon, but I had to call and tell you that was the best cake I've ever had in my life. And as the baker, she confesses that every single cake she has ever made and sold in that business was made with a $1 box of Betty Crocker cake mix. One of the things I realized about myself this past nonfiction November, after pretty eagerly reading three long nonfiction pieces about John Updike, totally unexpectedly, they just popped up on my radar, I swear, by accident, is that I like it when writers are unhappy. When they are genuinely, when, when you can read what they're doing and you can tell that they are really genuinely tormented by something and that they're aware of it. That's important too. They have to be aware, like sometimes, this happens a lot with memoirs. Like sometimes a memoir will be really interesting, but for like the totally opposite reason than the author seems to realize. I forget what it's called, the name of the movie studio that releases those Puppet Master movies and a bunch of other like D-grade horror schlock. But the guy who runs that studio released a memoir two years ago. And it's about how he made all these schlocky monster movies. I think he's in his early 60s now. And, and when you read his memoir, when he's talking about how he pulled it off and how he kind of like quipped and scammed his way into getting things done, you can tell that his sort of semi-Hollywood, his off-Hollywood memoir is imagining itself as like a great business book, kind of a revelatory up from the bootstraps tale. But really what makes the book fascinating is that the author doesn't realize he's kind of a monster. You read it and you wonder, like obviously this had some measure of editorial input, but you wonder if anyone pointed out to him that the stories this dude tells about like having sex on his office couch in the middle of the day when he was supposed to be doing other things and sort of telling stories out of school about his short-lived affair with Demi Moore. He's clearly aspiring toward like a high school level sense of coolness, but he really just ends up sounding incredibly smarmy and untrustworthy. Anyways, back to the point. That's kind of, I think, the state of mind I like writers to be in, is like tormented about an issue and also mindful about how tormented they are. So they see what's troubling them and they're sort of running into the fire. Does not mean that I want them to have shitty lives. I want to be able to see that they are using their writing as a means to figure something out about the world itself or about themselves, to make sense or make peace of something difficult. And the only vibes I ever got from John Updike's fiction is that he was appreciative of the genius level literary talent that he seems to have been born with. And not just born with, but he cultivated it, and he cultivated it responsibly. He appreciated that this was his talent, and he needed to nurture it, and so he sort of devoted, like a monk, his entire life to doing exactly that. He sat down dutifully at his typewriter every day, and he practiced his craft. But I don't think you would call him a genius about it, even though his talent was almost unparalleled. Like, he didn't use that talent to light up a candle and take it into a dark place. He just wrote about suburban sex and suburban discontent. Not to knock those two issues, like they're substantive and you can really get a lot of mileage and depth out of them. But with Updike, it felt like, you know, the time of year came when he's supposed to sit down and pump out another novel. And so he just kept returning to the milieu that he knew best as he's free to do. So that's my prevailing insight attitude in the wake of nonfiction November. Thought I had a list to run through, but I've been talking long enough. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>